and welcome to She Thinks, a podcast where you're allowed to think for yourself. I'm your host, Beverly Hallberg, and on today's episode, we discuss the hard issue of maternal mortality. We're honored to have on Representative Michael Burgess to help us understand why mothers are dying in pregnancy and in childbirth and what can be done to prevent it. Representative Michael Burgess has served the constituents of the 26th District of North Texas since 2003. He is the most senior medical doctor in the House and has been a strong advocate for health legislation aimed at reducing health care costs, improving choices, reforming liability laws to put the needs of patients first and ensuring that there are enough doctors in the public and private sector to care for America's patients and veterans. Representative Burgess, it's a pleasure to have you on the program. Well, thanks so much for having me on, Beverly. I look forward to our conversation. It's obviously one that's timely and attracts a lot of attention. Yeah, and when I first saw just the topic of today and what we decided to talk about maternal mortality. I'll be honest with you. I immediately thought, well, is this something that happens a lot in today's age? I thought this was something of decades past and that women just don't die in childbirth very often, but obviously that is not true. So can you first of all break it down as to how often it does occur? Uh, Why is this happening? And any background information you can give to us on this? Yeah, the number works out to, depending upon who you read, uh, 17 to 20 deaths per 100,000 live births. And, you know, this is something I actually have thought a lot about during my my training and, and when I was deciding what special medical specialty to, to enter. My grandfather was actually an OB-GYN. I never knew him. He died in 1940, so he, his death preceded my arrival by a, a significant number of years. But he chose the practice of obstetrics at a time when the paternal mortality rate was quite high. And he was of that generation of obstetricians where the dramatic reduction in maternal deaths began to be, uh, began to be realized. That was just prior to the introduction of antibiotics. The antibiotics obviously had a significant uh, ability to reduce maternal mortality in the 1940s and 1950s. But even prior to that, there was a recognition amongst people who practiced obstetrics, some of the things that might be done to, to make the practice a little less risky. So I, I know I've always sort of held my grandfather, oh, I never met him, I never knew him, uh, what a great amount of courage it took to undertake the practice of obstetrics uh, at a time in the course of medicine when things weren't as uh, they they weren't as settled as they as they certainly were when I entered into the practice. Now, uh, my attention sort of was redirected in this area. There was an article published in one of the one of the professional journals that I that I still receive and read at, just for people's background. I practiced medicine for 25 years in, in North Texas, practiced OB-GYN, and uh, ran for Congress in 2002 and entered Congress in 2003. So I'm not actively in practice, though I am still licensed. But the uh, probably uh, 2016, 2017, was an article published in the Green Journal that suggested the maternal mortality rate had jumped, and they actually pointed out how it had jumped in Texas. Now, it turns out there was a bit of a calculation problem with that, and there was a, a switch on how maternal 
mortality was viewed and, and reported starting in 2003, but it wasn't consistent among the states, and it was a checkoff method on a death certificate. Not every state had the box to be checked. So there was some delay in getting all of the states to, uh, to more or less the same place. And that led to some actual errors in the, in the calculation. But still, are, are you worried about a mathematical calculation or are you worried about losing someone that you shouldn't have lost? So that's really where I tried to focus that, uh, irrespective of the fact that, that there might have been an error in that calculation, one death is too many and let's, uh, let's focus on that and let's, let's try to improve that. Um, actually, was some significant work done in the last Congress. Uh, Jamie Herrera-Butler, who's a, a representative from Washington State, had a bill that, this was H.R. 1318 in the last Congress, the Preventing Maternal Deaths Act. It was um, a little bit difficult going through this in the last Congress. There were some people who felt uh, strongly one way or another, but here's the surprising thing. Congress actually came together and got this bill passed in October of 2018, and it was signed into law by the president in, in 2000, uh, December of 2018. Pretty significant happening. I do not recall, and I've been here for a few years, but I do not recall a standalone maternal mortality bill passing and being signed into law. Uh, sometimes it'll be something added to an appropriations bill or something added to some other bill, but this was a standalone bill that dealt with the creation of maternal mortality review committees in uh, allowing the, the technical expertise and, and the grant funding for maternal mortality review committees to be developed in all 50 states. And that was a significant step. Texas had already gone down that road and started their own maternal mortality review committee. But look, you, you, there's value in collaboration. There's value in people, in people talking. Now, subsequent to that time, uh, there's been some additional work done on this. We haven't yet passed a bill this Congress, but one that did pass out of committee and has passed since passed on the floor was H.R. 4996, and this was an approach that every state, of course, where maternal, maternal care is, is covered under Medicaid. Uh, obviously, Medicare is a, is a different population. Medicaid is a federal and state uh, a, a cooperation, cooperative agreement to help fund health care for people who are below certain income limits. And in the Medicaid program, in some states, there is a continuation of maternal care for the first year after delivery. In some states, it's only for the first 42 days. What this bill did was allowed states the, an, a state option to uh, continue that care for the full 12 months after delivery, and it was actually an uh, a, a bill that was paid for by, there was a, a, an offset that was found in the uh, pharmaceutical rebates, which seemed like a logical thing to do. Uh, and, and so the bill has passed the House. It has not yet been taken up by the Senate. Now, Texas um, in, individually looked at this in the last legislative session and decided that uh, not to expand to a full year after delivery. Um, I'm not telling a state that they have to expand to a full year after delivery. I simply wanted to make it available to them. And again, it is done in a way that is fiscally prudent because it does, it does have an offset, so it doesn't add to the, right. to the federal burden. 
But that's right. sort of the state of the state of play for right now. I will tell you this, and this is something that really concerned me when, when uh, <clears throat> in this Democratic Congress, the the adversarial nature of things really was put on display when we when when this topic came up in our in our health subcommittee and the the statement was made that there's no more dangerous place in the world to have a baby than the United States of America and i thought that doesn't sound right uh i did my residency training i did my my uh, postgraduate medical school training at Parkland Hospital in Dallas in obstetrics and gynecology. Yes, it was back in the 1970s. Uh, but at the same time, we took care of a population that was mostly minority, largely uninsured or underinsured, so a large Medicaid population to be sure. And as I recalled from back then, our maternal mortality statistics were some of the best in the nation. So I actually visited my old residency training program in August of, of 2019 and literally asked the question, are, is this something that, uh, that you are encountering? Is your, are, have your numbers become worse? And they said, no, our numbers are some of the best in the nation. So just the argument that because someone is uh, insured with Medicaid or uninsured, or just because someone is a member of a minority population, does not mean that the statistics are that you're not going to do as well in in having a child. Because, again, a big city big city hospital in Dallas, Texas, has been consistently able to do that over uh, over a number of years. And I actually asked some, some questions. I said, you know, when I was a resident, I recalled we used to have, uh, uh, you know, some, some various rules dealing with uh, if there were a certain type of complication during childbirth that it immediately triggered a series of responses. They said, yes, absolutely, that's the Parkland way. That's how we still do it. Right. And we've refined it uh, so that it's even it's even more precise than it was when when uh, when I was in, in training in the 1970s. So I was actually encouraged by what I saw in, uh, uh, again, an institution that I was pretty familiar with, but at the same time, I saw that this is a problem they took seriously, they addressed it seriously, and it does also tell me that the problem, we can reduce these numbers with attention to detail uh, and good clinical training, right. it is possible. Well, let me let me ask you a little bit more about that. So you did mention the act in 2018, which is the Preventing Maternal Deaths Act, and that was signed into law. A lot of that was about sharing information across the country and the information we do have. And this is according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. They say that 60% of maternal deaths are preventable. So can we get into the reasons why we are still seeing maternal deaths? Is there a trend within this? How much is happening during pregnancy versus childbirth versus even postpartum? So can you break that down just a bit for us? Yeah, it's a little difficult to get those statistics. You know, back in the 1970s, the, the historic triad for maternal mortality was uh, un, uncontrolled hypertension, uncontrolled bleeding, and of course, infection still uh, will, will always be on the list. So those were sort of the big three that were, were always of concern. As I looked at statistics more recently, there seemed to have been some 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 newer arrivals that were just as significant as far as numbers. 
uh, suicide, for example, was reported as one of the principal causes of maternal mortality in the in the in the time period after delivery. Um, cardiac disease seems to have increased more so than than uh, what it was in in previous years. And then uh, a big one is opiate overdose, and we certainly dealt with that in a number of bills in the last Congress, and continuing to deal with that in this Congress has been a little bit harder with the uh, with the imposition of the coronavirus, but certainly uh, in the last Congress we've recognized that opiate overdoses were a significant problem, and guess what? They affect this population just uh, the same as everyone else. And so what do you then say to a mother out there, let's say somebody's newly pregnant and they're fearful for their life. What do you say to that mother about the steps that she can take to ensure not just the safety of her child, but the safety of her own life as well? Well, bear in mind, this is coming to you from the, with the bias of someone who, who practiced <laughs> OB-GYN for numbers. Right. So I will say your, uh, your most important uh, your, your most important research is, is on your physician, and it's important to establish that relationship with a physician prior to getting the pregnancy and ensure that there's uh, all of the, if there are any outstanding health factors, that those are mitigated or at least managed prior to pregnancy. So someone who brings hypertension to the pregnancy, for example, they possibly could have a more difficult time with hypertension during pregnancy, superimposed preeclampsia on existing chronic hypertension long been recognized. So you want to get that under control or at least want to get that where it's going to be observed more closely or managed more closely during the pregnancy. A lot of times we don't think about the hospital facility itself, but that's important and hospitals do have data and some of it is publicly available and that is reasonable for someone to access. I think one of the things that impressed me in our hearings on this was that there does, does seem to be some uh, some differences between between hospitals. So as I pointed out, the, my old hospital of, of training, Parkland Hospital, has, has great statistics. There are other hospitals around the country that perhaps don't enjoy those, those same great statistics, but Parkland uh, manages to do it in the face of what uh, you might suspect would be some some uh, significant headwinds or, or difficulties of, of low insured population, of low income population, a high minority population, but they do a great job. Uh, it's not the same to say that every hospital in the country manages that same degree of that same degree of safety. So that's a significant factor. And this is one of the things where I think the Independent Women's Forum has done some good work and, and pushing the concept of healthcare transparency. Yes, price transparency is important, but health outcomes information transparency is also important. And I think if from a public policy standpoint, one of the things that I have really sought to push my entire time here has been the availability of data to the patient, to the consumer. And there has been a growing trend, and I don't have the statistics, but a growing trend of women who are choosing to have home births. So based on your almost three decades in, in this area, being an OBGYN, do you have any thoughts on the safety of home births and whether or not that's something that women should take or take maternal mortality into consideration if they decide to go in that direction? 
Well, certainly you'd want to uh, uh, have a conversation with your doctor and, and uh, think about are there any things that would place someone at higher risk because that, look, I'll just tell you, when things start to go bad in this situation, you don't have a lot of time for uh, course adjustments and, uh, oh, let's go to plan B. Sometimes things happen very, very acutely, very, very quickly. Um, I'll be honest with you, I was not, uh, uh, I did not, I have not done home births, so I'm probably not a good expert on that. Uh, I'm sure there are people who have experience with that who might feel differently. My, uh, I was always on the receiving end if there were significant complications. And again, things can go, uh, can get very, very difficult over a very short period of time. So certainly at the very least, um, make certain that all of the criteria for a healthy birth are met. Um, and you do that by a preconception or, or early pregnancy screening and people need to be, people need to be uh, uh, able to ask questions and get honest answers. Uh, someone who brings a problem with hypertension into the pregnancy, someone who's over or under ideal weight by a significant amount prior to the pregnancy. These would be reasons why, you know, perhaps this, uh, the, the path of a home birth would not be the best selection. And I'm going to change gears just a little bit before we let you go. I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about the Affordable Care Act. The stat is that you have voted over 50 times to repeal the ACA, so you have strong opinions about this. I was hoping you could give us a perspective into doctors. So how have doctors navigated the past years of the ACA and what has it meant for them? And why do you, as somebody who worked for years as a doctor, find that the ACA is not the direction you think the, the country should go? Well, let me just point out that many of those votes to repeal uh, were actually bipartisan votes. Um, most recently, the repeal of the uh, the so-called Cadillac tax, the extra tax on employer-sponsored insurance, the, the repeal the tax on the medical device industry, and repeal the tax on health insurance itself. Those were all bipartisan efforts. There was uh, a creation in the Affordable Care Act of something called the Independent Payment Advisory Board, uh, which became famous during the debates as uh, the shorthand term was the death panel. Uh, that actually got repealed and was a that was a bipartisan repeal. So. When, when people do talk about the number of times that I've stood in opposition to the Affordable Care Act, some of those times it's been, uh, that's been bipartisan opposition. And I have a list of some 20 things that President Obama himself allowed to either not happen or uh, not be enforced in the Affordable Care Act. So it's been, look, this is one of the things when you look at a big, big piece of legislation like this, it, the chutzpah to think that we're going to get this right at the first pass is, uh, I mean, no one, no one really should think that. And a bill this large signed into law uh, in March of, of 2010 has been altered and changed a number of times, some by executive order, some by just simply uh, agency uh, reaction, and sometimes by legislation. But it would be, uh, again, to have the bill as passed in 2010 being rigidly enforced today would, uh, would actually be unworkable. From a physician standpoint, one of the, one of the, one of the biggest objections is the, well, the, the pressure for consolidation in healthcare. It's always there. 
uh, insurance companies tend to form natural monopolies. Hospitals can can have that same tendency sort toward consolidation. Um, and hospitals then acquiring medical practices is something that you've seen really increase during the time of the of the 12, 15 years that the Affordable Care Act has been has been the law. And has this necessarily been a good thing for the practicing physician? No, not always. Has it been a good thing for the patient? No, not always. And to the extent that the Affordable Care Act was was so restrictive and tended to course is too strong a word, but it certainly facilitated consolidation within the healthcare space. I, I don't think that has really worked to any patients or physicians' benefit. Look at the things that have had to be paused during the time of the pandemic just to get us through this. And one of the arguments I've made is we need to look at all of the waivers that have had been given through the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Uh, waivers that allowed for reimbursement for telemedicine, for example. Uh, those things expire when the public health emergency goes away. We need to be certain that uh, we think through that. And if there's good policy there that has developed, even in the face of something as devastating as the coronavirus pandemic, that we don't, uh, that we don't let it expire and go back to status quo. On the let me just say this too generally about the Affordable Care Act. Uh, Supreme Court heard the arguments. I think you've seen the the reporting of the of, of the questions that were asked by the justices. The Supreme Court will not likely render its opinion until sometime in the next calendar year. So we're a ways away from knowing what they actually decided. If indeed they 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 decided anything, I, my my. Firm conviction has been that the Supreme Court is not going to be the one that changes this. And I think the court recognizes that this is a difficult task. And it correctly, in our system, <clears throat> in our system of divided government, it belongs in the hands of the legislative branch. And even some things that have been done by executive order, some of which I agreed with, but really it belongs in the hands of the legislative branch. If they're tough questions that we have difficulty dealing with, then constituents needs need to hold us accountable but that is why our system is set up the way it is these difficult questions need to be handled legislatively not through the courts and the problem with the executive orders as as we're seeing is those can be undone with the next uh, when the next executive takes office Exactly. And the the ACA and needing needing changes legislatively is something that we have talked about on this podcast. So we appreciate your work on that, Congressman Burgess, or should I say Dr. Burgess, for the sake of this podcast. We appreciate all the valuable experience and insight you've brought to Capitol Hill over the years and also for bringing that to us today on She Thinks. Thank you so much for joining us. Good deal. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. And thank you for joining us. Before you go, Independent Women's Forum does want you to know that we rely on the generosity of supporters like you. An investment in IWF fuels our efforts to enhance freedom, opportunity, and well-being for all Americans. Please consider making a small donation to IWF by visiting iwf.org backslash donate. That is iwf.org backslash donate. And last, if you enjoyed this episode of She Thinks, do leave us a rating or a review on iTunes. It does help. Also, we'd love it if you shared this episode and let your friends know where they can find more She Thinks episodes. From all of us here at Independent Women's Forum, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.